0: We are in Ephesians chapter 1, so if you would turn to uh, that chapter, verse 15, we'll uh, start there. How how many, by the way, while you're turning, were at the Friday night worship night? Yeah. So the people that are clapping are a conviction to you who didn't go. Um, Next time we do one, why don't you join us? It was a really great night, and God was, uh, I think God was honored. We were really happy with him on Friday night. That was awesome. So just a reminder. Ephesians chapter 1, once you get there, just look up for a second, I want to read something to you. This is a paraphrase of the scriptures, and I thought it would be an appropriate way for us to get our minds around what I think Paul is dealing with in our passage in Ephesians. I know that all God's commands are spiritual, but I'm not. Isn't this also your experience? Yes, I'm, I'm full of myself. After all, I've spent a long time in sin's prison. What I don't understand about myself is that I decide one way, but then I act another, doing things I absolutely despise. So if I can't be trusted to figure out what's best for myself and then do it, it becomes obvious that God's command is necessary. But I need something more, for, for I know that the law... Uh, know the law, but still I I can't keep it, and if the power of sin within me keeps sabotaging my best intentions, I obviously need help. I realize that I don't have what it takes. I can will it, but I can't do it. I decide to do good, but I don't really do it. I decide not to do bad, but then I do it anyway. My, My decisions, such as they are, don't result in action. Sometimes something has gone wrong deep within me and gets the better of me every time. It happens so regularly that it's predictable. The moment I decide to do good, sin is there to trip me up. I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. Parts of me covertly rebel, and just when I at least expect it, they take charge. I've tried everything, and nothing helps. I'm at the end of my rope. Is there no one who can do anything for me? Isn't that the real question? The answer, thank God, is that Jesus Christ can and does. He acted to set things right in this life of contradictions where I want to serve God with all of my heart and my mind, but I'm pulled by the influence of sin to do something totally different. Can anybody relate? Yeah. In 1980, God, in his miraculous way, saved me. And I was just a 19, 20-year-old kid that uh, didn't have a goal, I had no drive, it was just wasting my life. And my experience for me was I went from zero to 100 miles an hour like somebody threw a switch. So joy, never had that before. Um, I had a sense of purpose, passion, things started happening in my life. It was pretty obvious. Now, that was 38 years ago or so. And I can truly tell you, this is no lie, that I love him more today than I loved him then. Okay? But it's not for the reasons you think, maybe. Because you might conclude, well, you've, you've learned so much. You, you've done so much. And it's, it's, that's true. But there are some things that, that are even a greater uh, narrative of why. Because God in my story keeps showing up. He, he's relentless. He proves himself over and over again. And here's the kicker, in spite of me. So I know what I am and I know what I deserve and yet he does the other thing and I just go he's amazing and I love him more but there's something else that I can say after all these years that I had no way to anticipate in 1980. Hopefully you won't feel um, bad of me but there is something I hate about being a Christian too and it's my struggle with sin. I hate that. I told you many times before, and it ends up sort of like a joke, but I was serious when I said it in 1980. God, there's only a couple problems that I can see, a couple issues. You do your thing, I got the rest of this. And it wasn't true. And here's what I've discovered over the years, that I'm far more impatient, far more angry, Far more in lacking of compassion, far more lustful thoughts, far more coveting, materialistic, far more judgmental than I could have possibly fathomed in 1980. Had no concept of what I was. And here's something else I discovered over the years. I've got a lot of company. I've talked to countless of Christians, good, sincere people, really have a heart for God that over the years, through tears telling me about some particular struggle that just keeps defeating them. They're so tired, and they're so convinced there's no hope. So every Christian I know, which I interpret therefore as every Christian, has something they're dealing with. There is this thing, And we don't journal much about this, but there is this thing that if the Holy Spirit isn't running the store, we'll go do whatever our inclinations are bent towards. If there isn't supernatural Holy Spirit control, I'll go to Tim. And that's not a good thing. And every Christian I know has their list under that what I'll do if Jesus isn't in charge. There's some ongoing battle, some consistent repentance. I have to say that one over and over again. Some habit, some addiction, some behavior, some attitude, some way we cope, some way we manage that isn't the good news. You know what I'm saying? All of us. All of us have that issue. Sometimes we can see it. Many times we can't see it. And all of us at some point or time in our Christian faith ask this common question. It's true of every believer I've ever met. God, is it ever going to go away? Am I ever going to see victory over that? Because I really think if we could get rid of that, things would be better for us. I want to try to encourage you, church, today with what Paul says in his prayer for the church in Ephesus and therefore us. He describes some things that I want to wow you with today. One of them is he describes as the incomparably great power of God that is ours. And then I'm going to jump to another passage and try to help us understand how we can realize that power. But in verses 15 through 23, there is this prayer he prays. And we started to unpack it last week, but let's do this. Let's let's read it again in its entirety and let's pray and ask for God to move in our hearts. And then we'll uh, see what he says. Verse 15. Let's pray together. Lord, my prayer is that you would open the eyes of our heart to see, perceive, and believe what Paul is praying for us right now. God, our confession is clearly our story. It's who we are. You know more than anyone who we are. You know the heart that you created in us to love you, and you know the war that goes on between that and the flesh. And so sometimes we ask the question, God, is there any hope? Is there any any possibility of a change. Help us perceive what Paul says here as this truly great power that is ours in Christ, we pray. Amen. So, here we go. This paragraph, this wonderful prayer in verse 17. We dealt with this last week, or or Pastor Paul did, where he is praying that the Holy Spirit would give us a deeper knowledge of Jesus. Let me just stop for a second and make a point. If you don't ever know what to pray for, pray that. That should be number one on your list. You never have to wonder if it's a good one or an applicable one. Pray that you would know Jesus more. Good effort there. Paul prays for us that we might know Jesus even more. This knowledge thing is a two-way street, by the way. You are fully known. Every crevice of your being is known by God. There is a distance, however, in most of our knowledge of him. There is either a desire to be okay with what we currently know, so it doesn't allow us to go deeper, or there's a spiritual block. In fact, the word knowledge that Paul uses here kind of has a big and total concept of knowledge, a real, deep, full knowledge is what Paul is praying for, that you might know him as deeply as you can know him, full, wide, and deep. I... uh, this is really going to test some of you and your age as this illustration unfolds, but in the late 70s, I got invited to a lawn party for, with Vice President Walter Mondale. Does anybody know that name? Eight o'clock was all over this illustration, by the way. I was the clunky 19-year-old who was there. He was running for president, and I had a friend who knew some, you know how this works. she just knows somebody, and I'm standing at the hors d'oeuvre table, and he's standing there, and we're shaking hands and eating hors d'oeuvres. Now, I could tell you I know Walter Mondale, but that would be a massive stretch of the story. You understand? Some of us in our depiction of our Christian life have that kind of proximity to Jesus, and yet we say we know him. You have the Sunday Jesus. You have the emergency Jesus. You have the -the pull-the-shoot Jesus. You have some versions of Jesus out there, and you say, I know him. Well, Paul is praying for a totally different version of knowledge here. Full, deep True, not. I pray you go so far that you get intimate with him. Some of us are too comfortable with just a passing understanding of Christ. So Paul prays that you would have a deep knowledge. He goes on and he prays that we would have a better realization in verse 18 of the hope of our certain calling. And where does that certain hope come from? Everything Paul has been saying from the beginning of chapter 1 to this point here. To know that we are saved completely and only by the work of God and not by our work. You want certain hope? You want a guarantee that in spite of all your messes that God is going to finish? Well, then just put all the burden of salvation on him and stop trying to glean some for yourself. He is the sovereign one. We are safe and secure. We have guaranteed salvation because it's his work, his promise that he completes. And Paul says, I hope you get that. Because if you get how certain you are in him, then your life will be changed you won't have that insecurity that most of us walk around with, right? The kind of insecurity that Satan leverages against us to create fear and doubt, lack of assurance, right? And wandering hearts. Paul goes on to pray for our eyes to be open to the riches of belonging to God. He says that in verse 18. In other words, to understand that we are God's possession. We are loved and valued, that we are his treasure, can you imagine that? We are treasured by God. Sometimes we, we uh, stop short of the total picture of the good news, that God is just being, he is being benevolent, but that's all he's being, kind of like when we pass people who need money at the corner of the streets, we hand them a dollar and we go. We don't think about it. That's God's version of benevolence to us. He's just quickly kind, and we get recipients of, of that. We get heaven, right? God treasures us. We're his possession. There's a way bigger affection of God for us than just the idea of getting out of hell would tell. And then Paul adds, he adds this understanding that we would understand or we would, we would know deeply the power of God that we have in Christ Jesus. In fact, the words that Paul uses are, are pretty big and grand. The immeasurably great Power of God. I pray, church, that you would know that. That's what Paul prays for. Now, if that's all that we had, that statement right there is enough to answer the question that we ask all the time God, am I ever, is it possible? Is it possible that I could overcome this struggle? Is it possible that I can overcome this sin? What else do you need to know than He has the incomparably great power? He's the one with the source. Of all strength, Paul wants us to know, church, that God has the power to finish what he started in us. And what he started in us is a transformative work to shape us into the image of Jesus. And he's not only committed to it, he's able to it. Do you understand? He wants us to know that. So, is there a power to overcome our tongue when we destroy other people with it? is it possible that he can take our fears, i mean the crippling fears that prevent us from being just okay and it just changes everything about our what we see? Can he can he deal with my fears? Can he deal with my controlling ways or my hatred towards someone else or someone else? Can he take my lust and put a bucket of cold water on it? Can he can he take my addictions and my habits and can he can he work with those? Can he change those? Is there anything that can conquer the sin that I continue to see in my life. And Paul basically, in the blank spaces in this passage, has one word answer, absolutely. Yes, he can. He can change it. And to speak of his power, Paul has a fairly in-depth, detailed version or description of this power that we have. But before we unpack how he describes this power, I have to give you the one condition that he puts in this passage for this power. Hopefully you can see it In verse 19. In fact, he says that you may know, verse 19, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. The better rendering of this passage isn't toward us, it's in us. So let me read it again with that in our minds. What is the immeasurably greatness of his power in us who believe? And here's why I think it makes a difference. Sometimes we read the word toward us and we we kind of think about God just shotgunning into the world this power. And as long as I can get under it, I got some power on me. Like it's up to me to catch the power. Like be in the right place at the right time to get in the power. Paul says it's in you already. You have all the power that you need. Christ died, the Holy Spirit lives in you. You have the power. You have all of it. It's yours if, and this is the condition, if, in verse 19, you believe. Now, I'm going to stop and, and try to make a point. The power that Paul is talking about here is an exclusive power. It's God's power for God's people and, and no one else. That's what he's talking about. And it needs to be said, so I need you to just lean into it, because I have no idea who comes. I just know what's here, and what's here are people who truly believe and People who don't believe. And so I want to talk to you for a second. When I'm describing sin that gets the best of us and leaves us miserable, there isn't a person in this room that doesn't go, I get that. You don't have to be a believer at all to get that. I've experienced the misery of sin. You can relate to it. You can understand it. Everyone here wants life to be better. Who wouldn't? And who isn't sick of all the cataclysmic results of my behavior. Who isn't sick of that? Who wouldn't stand in that line and go, take, just take that away? I'd want that to go. But you need to hear this. And the reason why this exclusive statement is here is for you. Wanting victory in your life without the maker of life isn't possible. You, you want all the change. You don't want the one who brings the change. And it's not available to you. Because God's intention is to transform us, not to make us just simply a transformed people, but to make us look like his beloved son, Jesus. So you can't want what Jesus provides without wanting Jesus. And I want to say this next thing, and I don't want you to think it's heretical, so you got to listen to the whole statement before you judge me. But this is what, this is the truth of this statement. The whole point of God saving sinners isn't really just about overcoming sin, as much as it is understanding what Paul has been saying throughout this letter so far, that we would be in Christ. In Christ. Loving Christ, being like Christ, glorifying, satisfied in him, serving him, obeying, in Christ. Not just making immoral people who now don't experience the suffering of their own problems. Christ is the point, not just overcoming the issues. So as always, there's a good news story in this for us if by your own assessment of your own heart you would say I don't know Jesus and the offer is for you and it's for you every week you hear it in communion you hear it in our sermons lay down your other good news lay down your self-sufficiency and your denial and your sin and your idols and your life and run to Jesus and guess what you'll get Jesus That's what you'll get. Will you have hope? Certainly you'll get hope because the Bible promises that. Will you have forgiveness? Yes, you'll have forgiveness. Will you see this incomparably great power in your life? Yeah, you will that too. But all those things are side points to the fact that we'll have him, the one who overcame sin for us. Do you believe that, church? Okay, you could be more convicted next time you answer. (laughs) We're gonna experience the power of God working in us to radically transform us not just to leave us as a transformed people, but to make us like his beloved son. Jesus is the point. The power, by the way, that Paul is talking about here, he goes on to great lengths to describe. In fact, Paul uses four synonyms in this verses to detail the power that we have in Christ. And I think it matters because when you get back from the big this big section of scripture and see how much he's trying to tell us about all that is ours. It will, it will really matter. Four, four particular words in these verses. Again, let me just read them starting in verse 19. That we may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power, that's one word, toward us or in us who believe according to the working, that's the other word, and I'm gonna blend the uh, NAS, their translation to the ESV here because I think it says it better. According to the working of the strength of his might. That in total is what Paul says about this great power that he wants us to know. The first word that defines this thing is the word power itself. It's where we get the word dynamite, dunamis. You've heard this before. The whole point of this this word is the explosive power, the miraculous power of God. So as Paul is laying out for us this power that's ours, he's saying, it's a miraculous power. So you want kind of power? This is the kind of power it is. It's it's miracle working power. The word working is the second word that describes it. It's where we get the word energy from. So in other words, it's the energizing force of God's spirit working all things after the counsel of his will. That the Holy Spirit is energizing change. So you have miracle, you have Holy Spirit energy, right? The word strength is the third word. It's where we get the word dominion. In other words, sovereignty. So hopefully you see me building the case for what this sentence is going to look like. And then the last word is might, which simply means ability to accomplish. So let me paraphrase in one sentence everything Paul has just said. That Paul wants us to know God's power in us is a miracle working sovereign ability to reform us into Christ kind of power. Questions? <laughs> what are we lacking? Need a miracle? need energy, you need somebody with the ability to bring change in your life, you need someone who's sovereign over all things to shape them, to work in our life, what do you need? It's all right here, right? It's a wonderful depiction of this power that's in us. So questions, can God rescue? Yes. Can God save? Yes. Can God realign your affections? Yes, yes of course he can. And Paul says, you want proof? Verse 20, I'll give you proof. That should be enough, but here's here's the demonstration of this power, this power of great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Paul specifically talks about two things as evidence that he has the power to do what we're talking about, to bring change in our life. The first one is that God's power in us is a death-conquering power. There is no clear demonstration of God's miracle working sovereign ability than the resurrection, right? You gotta be all of that to pull that off. Paul says it's the same power that's in us, same power, not a version of it, not a small one, same power, resurrecting power. And I believe this, that there's nothing in our world more insurmountable than death. Everyone vote yes for that one? Can't, Hard to overcome that one. And yet God's power is greater. A lot of people that don't believe that, by the way, as strange as that might sound. In fact, there's a, there's a company in Scottsdale named Alcor that actually freezes people hoping that they can beat death. You know that, right? There's a guy his name's James Bedford in 1968 who was the first to be cryogenically frozen. He had cancer and he was hoping that if he just freezes himself, they're going to wake him up someday when they have the ability to do both, wake him up and fix his cancer and he'll live on. Because we can beat death. And they actually believe that they're hoping science can catch up. Scriptures do have a problem with that because it's appointed unto men to die once and then face judgment. Okay? Nevertheless, James Bedford is holed up in a silo in Scottsdale since 1968, 50 years. And here's what they've discovered. I saw this on the internet, so it's got to be true. All right? <laughs> here's what they've discovered after 50 years he's still dead. Nothing is more insurmountable than death. But here's what Paul wants you to know through the example of Jesus God's power is greater. God's power is greater than the grave. So, church, stop for a second. When you're sitting there after a particularly difficult day where you've done the very thing you don't want to do, you know, those days where you're worn out by you, the thing you've confessed a thousand times, and the question pops in your mind is this winnable? Can I overcome it? Paul says, of course you can. Jesus rose from the dead. <laughs> this is not just words, church. This is power. He wants us to know the proof is the resurrection. God can transform us. Somebody say amen to that. And if he can raise Jesus, he can raise you. The second evidence that Paul brings in this verse not only is God's power in us a resurrecting power, a death-conquering power, it's an ascension power. Now you might sit here and go, well, how, how, wait a minute, how does the ascension of Christ have anything to do with my struggle or my victory? How? I, don't, I don't get it. So let me try to describe to you what Paul does, three particular things in this one passage. Again, let me read this and we'll just make our points. That uh, is the example this wonderful power, verse 20, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. That's the first thing. So my paraphrase of this wonderful so what of this ascension is that Jesus ascended far above those things, those other authorities and those other dictators in our life. Far above. That that phrase is like, I don't know how to describe it. He didn't just get a little bit above your problems. He didn't just get a little bit ahead of your sin. Far above all, what's it say? Rule, authority, power, and dominion. Far above Satan or his schemes to thwart God. Far above all names that challenge the authority of God. Far above all titles and far above all powers. He is far above, and I'm really glad that he is. Above all other dictators and authorities. Because my confession is sometimes it feels like certain experiences or feelings or issues have authority over me. Doesn't it feel that way? Doesn't it feel like, oh my gosh, they're bullying me? Doesn't it feel like I can't stop? It feels like there's some other thing. It feels like something else is in charge and that is so not true, church. Our Jesus is far above the things that appear to control us. Can you say amen to that? I'm going to do this next verse backwards, verse 21, but the second phrase, second point, where Paul says that he has raised Jesus far above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also the one to come. Jesus ascended far above all other names and idols, and I am so glad that he did, because sometimes I feel so drawn to the wrong name. Don't you feel drawn to the wrong place and the wrong name, to the wrong thing, the thing that says come here and you'll have peace, come here and you'll find joy? I feel so drawn to something because it sounds like it's better. Isn't that the explanation for every sin we commit anyway, that at that moment we lose our minds and we act wrong and we go, it will satisfy, only to get burned? Isn't that how we define it? It plays like it's better, but it's not better. And Paul tells us, listen, you have power, you have the resurrection power of Jesus, the ascending power of Jesus, that will ultimately say that he is far better than all things, all the things that draw us. One last thing, verse uh, 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. Jesus ascends far above all obstacles, all things. And I'm so glad that he did. Because sometimes, I'm just going to say this, sometimes it feels like there's mountains in the way. Doesn't it? Like you can set your head, your mind as flint to go out there and just fight that sin like crazy, and suddenly there's this hurdle. It feels like a hurdle. It feels like there's hurdles all over the place. Like I want to do good, but the very thing I don't want to do, that's what I am up doing. All these oppositions, all these concerns, as soon as I want to grow impatient, somebody's a jerk to me, okay? There's problems, and it feels like there's hurdles, and there's no way to overcome them. There's no way I'm going to leave that sin. Too, too much. There's too much in my past. There's too many hurdles in my life, too many feelings I'm dealing with, and that is so not true because Jesus is so far above everything that tries to pretend to hinder you you understand why the ascension is so important to understanding what's possible, what's available, this power of God? It's because he's over everything that you use as an excuse to fail. Come on. It's true. Far above what appears to control us, far above what appears to draw us, far above whatever hinders us. He is all authority over every name and all things. And get this, this is amazing to me. Verse 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the, what's it say? To the church. The same power that raised Jesus and placed Jesus above all things was given to the church. And what does that mean? It means that the rule that he has been given was given for the benefit of those he loves. Think about that. You are not just an afterthought. You are not just some kind of side appendage to every great thing God's doing. God has focused his rule on blessing his people. Isn't that what it says? It's a wonderful truth. His rule has been given for the benefit of those he loves. The church in verse 23, he goes on to say, which is his body. We're familiar with that language, aren't we? We talk about this language all the time, the word picture of him being the head and we being the body, we're the expression of the will of the head. But there's another side of this that we don't use very often, and that is this phrase here, the fullness of him. That this church, this church, which is his body, is the fullness of him. Let me try to find that or explain it this way. It's through a quote by John Calvin. It's, it, it might be something you've never thought of before, but he said it this way. This is the highest honor of the church, that until he, Christ, is united to us, the Son of God reckons himself in some measure incomplete. What consolation it is for us to learn that not until we are in his presence does he possess all his parts, nor does he wish to be regarded as complete. The union that Jesus, the head, has with us, the church, the body, is greater than you could possibly fathom. He doesn't see himself, he doesn't choose to see himself as finished without us. That somehow the expression of Jesus is made perfect in the body. Worshiping, serving, obeying, living as him. One, it'll happen, we know that. One day it's going to be all made perfected. But he sees himself, he sees us as the fullness of the expression of that, okay? And if you want to know how committed God is to you, He's committed to you as much as he is to his own glory because his glory is at stake. He's decided not only to save but to show himself And this. It's a wonderful truth. We are the fullness of him is what Paul says. Questions. Do you believe, really believe, that you have the same power in you right now as the power that raised Jesus from the dead? It's okay, you can answer it inside if you want to. Do you believe you have the same power? The same power, this ascension power that put Jesus over all things, all the things, all the reasons why you struggle? Do you believe that? Okay, I want to help us take steps in Living like that turn to philippians 3 i'm going to take just a few seconds here to give you some practical things from paul paul's talking about by the way this resurrection power in philippians chapter 3 same concept And Paul's next statement after mentioning this wonderful power is to talk practically of what he does to realize that power. So you just want to get down and dirty with the practicals. This is where it's coming from. Let's read this section, chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. And I'm going to make a point before I give you the uh, sub points. Here's what he says. Paul says, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, here's the phrase we've been dealing with, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Can I give you a question before I give you the practicals? If you want to experience this power we've been talking about, it starts with the answer to this question. What is your desire? Seriously, answer it in your heart. What is your desire? Cuz I read Paul and he goes, I got one thing on my mind. I want to know him. I just want to know him. I'm certain there's so what's to knowing him. I'm certain Paul's not gonna be the same guy. I'm certain he's gonna get over sin or see miracles in his life. I'm certain lots of stuff's gonna happen. But Paul had one predominant thought. I wanna know Jesus. So if you want the power, but you don't want Jesus, we got a problem. What do you want? What's your desire? Do you wanna know him? Here's Paul's actions. I'm gonna do this kind of backwards in verse 12. I'm gonna deal with the second phrase of verse 12 first of all. I want you to know that you have to believe something to start with. You wanna be practical? Believe that God has a plan to transform you. In fact, let me just, instead of reading the, the verse 12 from the ESV, the NIV does it better, I think, where he says, Paul says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So questions. Why did God take hold of you? Sounds like a reasonable question, right? I want to take hold of the very thing, the reason why Jesus took hold of me. Why? What is the point of that? Watch this. For you and me to look like Jesus in Christ. That's what he says. And you have to believe that he's doing a transformative work to accomplish that. So it starts with this confession, this belief that that's where we're going. Let me give you a second thing. It's the first half of verse 12, where He says, about this power of the resurrection, to know him, he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. You have to admit you're far from finished. It's interesting to know the timeline of Paul as he writes this. He's been a believer, leader in the church for 25 years when he writes this. That passage I read to you in paraphrase form in the very beginning is Romans 7. Paul wrote that. Here's the reality of it. The point is that until God deals with our flesh and glory, we won't be completed. So therefore, you have to be okay with God's timing and God's tension as he transforms you into the image of Jesus. You you might look at something and go, there's just no way I can survive it, i.e. Paul's thorn in the flesh, right? God, there's a problem, and we could do so much better work if you could just get rid of my problem. And God said what? My grace is enough. You got to be okay with how he controls the timeline and be okay with the tension as he transforms us. I have no idea what it takes to transform a life, but he does, right? Here's the third thing. Verse 13, that's what he says. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead Here's the point I think we need to make. Don't allow past sin and failure to lead your future, which, by the way, is a very trendy thing in our culture. Our past says more all the time in our culture than what Jesus died to give us. People want to form groups about our past. Here's what Paul said. One thing. (laughs) OCD, one thing. Myopic, irritating, one thing. I think one thing. One thing. I forget the past. I try to forget the past. Every once in a while I wake up at night and I can see Stephen's face in my eyes and I remember giving charge over his death. I remember that stuff, but I try to forget what I was because what I am in Christ is more important. So I strain forward to what God is doing in me in spite of all my messes. Let, let me just suggest to you, the church has to get a lot better at forgetting. It has to. This is, this is what Paul exampled, to know the powers to forget and move forward. you understand I'm not trying to be simplistic. I'm trying to encourage you to be okay with going, I have to fight to forget. Because that's the language that Paul uses here. And one last thing. Verse 14, where he says, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Make it your mission to chase the prize. The word goal he uses and the word prize he uses, the, the word goal is a distant mark looked at. It's like Paul saying, you know that bullseye A hundred miles away, that's the goal. It's a distant target. I can see it. I can see it. The prize is the ultimate being perfected in Christ, to finally be like him. And I love the words that he uses. These are my kind of words. I press on. I strain myself. I got one focus. I'm committed. Most of us are not committed enough to anything, let alone this great thing. Paul's example is I'm shutting all the windows, I'm closing all the doors, I'm becoming myopic about this one thing, and that is the mission to chase the prize. I'm gonna use an old illustration I think it's an old illustration. Um, Joseph Stoll, who was the president of Moody Bible, told the story, and I think it makes a good point of what it is to live the Christian life as we go for the prize. He actually read somewhere about the original Greek Olympic Games, that there was a race in there, unlike any other race. And most of the races were clearly like ours, you know, the guy who crosses the line first, the guy who lifts the most, he's the winner. But they had a really peculiar race. They would hand a torch to all the runners, and the object wasn't to cross the line first. The object was to cross the line with your torch still lit. I hope you get the illustration. Some, some of us, uh, we're not even thinking about finishing. But this wonderful, wonderful gospel, this new heart gospel, this one where you wake up and you're miserable what you did and you confess it and you get up to fight it again, do you want to cross the line hearing the words, well done? What you'll have is the gospel. And Jesus is the champion when you're all done. Don't go weary. Don't go weary. The power that Paul prays for is already ours. Already ours. Let's finish, yeah? Let's pray. God, help us, I pray, to see this and believe this, this power that Paul prays for us, the church, that we might know the power of his resurrection and the fact that he has ascended far above all rule and all authority, all other things, all other names. Our Jesus is in charge of everything. So whatever it is we need, we've got. God, help us believe that live like that, trusting you and the timing and the tension that is a part of our development as well. God, help us to love you every day more and more and more, to know you more. That's what we want, God. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.